An old book. A book about witchcraft. You're listening to the Whitewood Podcast, a show about mystery schools, the occult, and witchcraft. Would you like to have a look around? Why have you come to Whitewood? Well, because I'm interested in witchcraft. I'm your host, Nate. Come with us as we delve into the history, techniques, and backstories of these traditions and the people who practice them. Welcome back to the Whitewood Podcast. My name is Nate Driscoll, and in this episode, we're going to be talking about the planets. Now, uh, it is a little bit of a misnomer to call them planets, but in magic, uh, there is this uh, set of celestial objects. Uh, very, This whole conversation is going to heavily overlap with uh, astrology, and not as much with astronomy, Obviously, there is um, some scientific information about which of these are actually planets, which of them are just celestial bodies, which of them are just objects floating around in the middle of, you know, space. And by no means would we make any sorts of claims uh, that would uh, challenge the scientific status quo of the interpretation of planets and the rotation of the Earth and uh, those kinds of things. Um, but... Uh, when we talk about planets within magic, we're actually talking about symbols. Uh, we're talking about symbols that were used many, many, many generations ago that were passed down from one culture to another culture to another culture, similar to the way that the elements are a set of four symbols that have been passed down from culture to culture, uh, and each one of them acts as kind of a categorization, uh, a symbol that can be interacted with within the uh, the, the psyche as well as within uh, magical practice. And so when we're talking about these planets, we are much more talking about astrology, the symbol that these things uh, mean, as opposed to talking about the physical object that is up in the sky that you might be able to see. Now, uh, of course, one thing to keep in mind is that these were inspired by said objects in physical reality and so um, especially as we start to do some talks uh, eventually we're going to have to get a little bit more in depth into astrology itself but at this point we're just talking about different symbol sets that are valuable um, when we start talking about astrology itself we'll have to start talking about oh okay well this one you know moves in this fashion and across the sky and every so many years it does this and every so many days it does this and that's why it's tied into these types of symbols. And we'll talk a little bit about those kind of things, but we're going to go a lot more in depth into those types of things when we talk about that. Um, but um, in order to kind of have this conversation, I, I feel like we need to define what we're talking about. We're talking about the symbols behind them. We're not talking about the planets. We're talking about um, what their interpretation was when these things were founded, which astrology seems to have come from Babylonian or Assyrian culture, very, very, very old, um, many, many thousands of years ago, and has been passed down throughout that. And so uh, these symbols have been around for a long time. They've coagulated a lot of information. That's, in occult practice, a good thing. You know, it helps us to empower a thing. I will also say that uh, there are communities that uh, stand 
against uh, astrology in general. Um, one that's obvious is the astronomy community. The astronomy community, of course, doesn't uh, want there to be uh, any interpretation other than the scientific interpretation of the movement of planets. I can understand where they're coming from. If I was trying to hold a career in the sciences and was um, actively trying to scientifically prove using physics and calculations and measurements, um, all sorts of things, and then some kook came along and was like, oh, hey, also, any time that that's in the same room as you and you're facing north, then this thing happens. And it's like, well, that's not verifiably true. And I don't think that we need to be up at arms against the scientific community by any means. I know many scientists that are occultists. I know many occultists that are scientists and vice versa. I know a lot of people that are, you know, uh, in a lot of different boats, wear a lot of different hats. And so I personally would just say that we're talking about different things. One of them is talking about symbols within the psyche and the ways that those can be used and interpreted. And the other is talking about physical objects and measurements and those kinds of things. The other community that uh, is uh, diametrically opposed to astrology in general is the chaos magic community. Um, I think that most of this has spawned from Peter Carroll's work. And uh, he, of course, inspired many others. Personally, I really like his work. Um, and uh, I have found a lot of meaning in his random pages within things like Libra Null or The Psychonaut or, you know, some other books that he wrote, Libra Chaos. Um, I have personally found them to be fantastic uh, pieces of work. However, uh, he does have this um, concept that gets really prominent in a lot of uh, people who are really big on his work, uh, where astrology, because of its, because of its um, clock-like nature, because it's so predefined, spinning at a specific rate every so many days, you can predict that this next cycle will come, that it's limiting towards uh, the individual, towards the concept of the expansion uh, via chaos, that you know, this, um, uh, that uh, all of the options don't just play out in a giant wheel over time over and over and over again, but that new options arise, things that we could not have perceived in the beginning and new variations come out. And what I have found is that um, personally, I don't necessarily disagree with his work, but I disagree with the idea of taking an entire set of symbols that have worked very well for a lot of people that, um, you know, have made their way into everything from, you know, the Golden Dawn and Crowley's work to ancient cultures to even the Sunday newspaper. You know, it's one of the strange parts of the occult world. It's one of the sets of symbols that's uh, available. And, you know, if you if you went to church in a Christian setting and you said, I'm fucking with tarot, a lot of people will recoil from that. They will find that to be uh, aggressively offensive. Whereas if you say, oh yeah, I read my horoscope this morning, people are not offended by that. So for some reason, this particular one has made its way into the mainstream. And I think there's value in that um, being used over many, many years and having uh, sets of uh, correspondences. Now, the chaos community often is a proponent of making your own symbols. And I also think that that works and I support them in that. And I do it myself. You know, I have taken a lot from their work and, 
Uh, while I don't know that I would self-identify as a chaos magician, I definitely think that their work is valid. But uh, as a whole, the community of chaos magic is uh, often, obviously you're talking about individuals, each individual is going to have their own interpretations and uh, opinions, but as a whole seems to be against uh, astrology in general because it lacks the expansive property of allowing new variations to pop up out of the woodworks via chaos. So um, that's one thing to keep in mind is you have those two communities. Now, um, I don't know that they would necessarily be opposed to how I'm suggesting we use it today, but as we start to dive more into like an actual astrology whether that's predictive astrology or native chart, native, I'm sorry, natal charts, uh, talking about like when you're born, what your what stars are in the sky, and those kinds of things. Uh, definitely, when we start to get down those roads, um, they they tend to not agree, and that's okay. In the occult, we don't all have to agree. It is a very subjective practice, and um, I actually would rather the occult be made up of types of people who don't see eye to eye so that we can better explore the framework behind this than everyone being disillusioned in one opinion and uh, never be able to suss out the things that, uh, that allow said variation because it allows us to find deeper things, structural things, as opposed to just things that work. Um, so I think that, um, yeah, that's kind of where I'm coming at with that. So um, so I said that they're not the planets. They're not technically the planets. And here's why. So if you go back to ancient cultures and they're kind of like, they're just now starting to create these mathematical tools that allow them to take the sky, the night sky, write it down on a piece of paper, look at it the next night, write it down on a piece of paper, and, uh, you know, kind of track constellations, seasons. Um, it helped them to, of course, figure out the harvest and those kinds of things, right? Uh, one of the things that they noticed was that there are uh, seven visible objects. There, there are technically others as well, but there were seven in particular that they noticed that they tracked very heavily that moved independently of the rest of the objects. Now, I don't want to get super into what the ellipsis is and how it operates. We're going to go much more in depth when we talk about an actual astrology episode, but there is this this place in the sky called the ellipsis. It's basically a path that goes from the east to the west in a big arc around the sky. And what the ancients noticed was that there are objects uh, that seem to, for whatever reason, the whole sky will shift along that point over the night. That's caused, of course, by the rotation of the earth. We know that now. Um, they at this time thought that there was a sphere of stars that was spinning around us. But we now know that we live... Uh, you know, in a, in a different... We're not an Earth-centric model anymore. We understand that we are not the center of the universe. Um, so the whole sky would move from the east over to the west every single night as we rotated. And um, what they noticed was that there were seven objects that were moving independently of that rotation. Sometimes they would move that same direction, but slower. Sometimes they would move that same direction... Uh, but faster. Sometimes they would move the other direction. This really blew their minds, where you have like an object 
the whole sky as a whole and all the different stars and their positions and arrangements seem to be all moving together as if it was one physical object rotating. But then all of a sudden they notice that this one is going backwards. That's, you know, yesterday it was close to this star. It was a degree away from this star. And then the next day it was, you know, several degrees farther. And they started to try to figure out which objects were actually moving. And the conclusion that they came to was that these seven objects were moving differently than the rest of the stars. The objects were, of course, the sun and the moon. Those ones are pretty obvious, but all of these are visible with the naked eye. Uh, so the sun, the moon, Mercury, which at one point was believed to be two planets, Venus, which at one point was believed to be two planets. And that has to do with, um, well, well, we'll talk about that as we actually get into some of the specifics. Um, Mars, uh, Jupiter, and Saturn. So those are the, the, when we talk about magical planets, or sometimes they get referred to as the alchemical planets, or uh, the planetary forces, what we're talking about is the symbols that are the Sun, the Moon, Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn. Now, each one of these moves independently in the sky. They don't move with each other. There is something to be said about how they still kind of move with the sky because we, the Earth, are rotating. They still go from right to left. However, in comparison to the other things around them, depending if they're in one point of their orbit or another point of their orbit, um, they might move forwards or backwards. If their orbit is tilted up and down, they might move uh, farther away from that ellipsis line than another planet might. And so each one of the movements of these is a little bit different. And of course, the size of those orbits and how far they are away from us causes some differences in how long these cycles take. And all of these things are really important in understanding why specific planets were given specific uh, symbolisms. Uh, for example, Saturn takes a very, very, very long time to return to the same spot that it was in the sky. Uh, it moves very slowly, and it can take, uh, I mean, 25, 30 years to, to return to the exact same point that it was at on a specific day. So if you say, I was born today, how long will it take for Saturn to come full circle and go all the way around the sky and then be back in that same point? It will take into your adulthood. And so it, the planet got associated with some of those types of things. Whereas Mercury, Mercury has a very, very short, um, an incredibly short, uh, I think it's only, it's what is it, 88 days to go all the way around the sun, right? And that means it's only 44 to get days to go from one side to the other. Um, so it changes directions because we're looking at the orbit sideways. We're not looking at the circle. We're looking at the side so we see it move in a line and it moves back and forth and back and forth around the sun and uh, of course it is very difficult to view because the sun gets in the way of it it's very bright but you can see how that might you know very quick movements and its tilted orbit uh, means that it finds its way into areas of the sky that other things do not and so you can see how the idea of mercury being associated with like communication and travel uh, how that's informed by some of the the patterns that existed in the sky right um so the roots of these astrology uh systems they came from sumer assyria and babylonia and uh basically had to do with 
the first people, the first cultures that were figuring out the length of the day and figuring out how long it takes to get to a lunar eclipse and a lot of other things. So um, they, they found these seven objects are moving differently and they started to associate specific meanings with them. Um, eventually, they started to attach uh, gods and goddesses and those kinds of concepts, maybe great spirits, you know, those kinds of things, uh, to those planets. And sometimes that meant that a planet picked up some new symbols, and sometimes it meant the god picked up some new symbols. And so uh, nowadays, it's all kind of blended together. It's been many, many, many thousands of years of that happening. And so, like, for example, uh, Mercury, the, the, the messenger of the Greek gods. Well, I guess Mercury is his Roman name. Uh, what is it? Hermes, I believe. Hermes is the... Yeah, if I remember correctly, it's Hermes. Um, the, the, the Greek version. Um, but the Roman edition, uh, as the namesake suggests, he was associated with moving and travel and dance and, you know... Uh, sending messages from one person to another because this star that's moving around in the heavens, this planet, it's, uh, you know, it, it goes over into this constellation way up high and then it goes way down here to this other one and it goes over here and it's so fast and darting around and you can see how uh, the mythology gets interpreted by the planetary movements and the planetary movements get interpreted by the mythology and eventually they become one symbol. So... When we use planets and magic, we're using them a couple of different ways. Uh, most of these are built off these correspondences. So each planet has a catalog of different things. It's an abstract kind of an energy. If uh, Just like we've talked about in other types of symbols, if you were to uh, try to understand any of these types of things by saying, like, oh, fire, fire always equals this, you're probably not going to get very far. But if you say, oh, fire is like a, a very vague term that includes everything that kind of feels like these 20 things, then you're going to have a little bit more of a, an understanding of it. So, um, the same way that you can use uh, like an element, you can use one of these other types of symbols. So, uh, you could you know meditate on one of them, try to gain insight in a relationship with that type of energy, that abstract thing that exists out there somewhere in your psyche or somewhere in the universe, however you interpret that. Um, you can uh, use that one planetary energy in order to interpret events or you know to understand the nature of something, understand its opposite, how different things influence and how uh, those can can take a play in events. Uh, and then, of course, there are some traditions that are built around these as well. And uh, some of them might be like certain other symbols being ruled over by these celestial objects or um, maybe like certain hours of the day being ruled by these types of things as well. Uh, and then, of course, obviously, one of the ways that you can use this is astrology. Um, and um, the interpretation of uh, things like the tarot. You know, there are certain cards that, uh, if you look really close at the Thoth deck, the Thoth deck is the deck that was designed by Aleister Crowley, and he uh, commissioned someone to paint them under his close supervision. Uh, this is also the case with the uh, probably the most standard deck that we see, which is the Arthur Edward Waite deck. 
Um, Arthur Edward Waite and Aleister Crowley were both members of the same fraternal order. They were messing around with a lot of the same symbols, and so uh, their interpretations are pretty close. Um, obviously, uh, Crowley was one to come up with his own interpretations and often um, try to correct the work of others, and, and that's probably why he made the thought that, because in response to Arthur Edward Waite's deck, I would imagine, based on how he did some of his other work. Um, but so Arthur Edward Waite's deck, a lot of times um, the planetary symbolism is not as obvious, but there, it's like there in the image, you know, it's like there might be like a small symbol in the background that like, oh yeah, if you know the Kabbalah, you might know that this is a symbol of this. Uh, whereas with the Thoth deck, he would literally draw the symbol for Mars on the card somewhere in the background. So um, you could definitely... Uh, interpret individual cards throughout the tarot as having been influenced by, ruled over, empowered by these types of energies, some component of them, if that makes sense. And so, uh, and then finally, you can invoke and banish these energies the same way you would invoke or banish anything else. So the same way you might like do a ritual to increase the amount of fire energy in your life, you could increase the amount of Venus energy in your life or those types of things. Um, and uh, yeah, really, really any way that you can use any symbol is, is a pretty valid way to, to go about it. Um, one thing is uh, that these symbols are slightly separated from the... Uh, the elemental systems, because this, this is the macrocosmic, uh, dealing with large cycles, things that are greater than man, dealing with the movement of the sky, the the plotting of civilization's course, the uh, seasons, the harvests, the you know years of individuals. The um, it's dealing with like the macrocosmic, whereas like the microcosmic energies, the the elemental energies are much more like your feelings, how you, you know, my passion, my, not to say that there are not fire things out there in the uh, universe, but generally the interpretation of macrocosmic versus microcosmic uh, are that there's planetary forces on the larger scale and on the smaller scale that there's elemental energies. Um, so very much, very much similar in the way that they're utilized and described just on that other scale. Um, so let's dive into some of the specific planets, some of the different images and colors and ideas that might be tied into these things. For some of them, it's, you know, it would make sense for us to explain kind of why some others, like I said, it has to do with being associated with God or goddess for a long period of time. Some of them have gained attributions. I will also say that from the advent of the telescope, obviously we found some other celestial objects, <laughs> a couple. <laughs> and um, there was a movement at one point, now that we were discovering these new things, to take some of the associations away from the already existing seven or to take new advents of technology that didn't exist before and associate them with the new bodies that were discovered. Generally speaking, I don't, I'm not a huge proponent of that because I think it's a never ending 
um, process because now there's billions of planets and stars that we've all isolated, billions of galaxies, and it's just uh, I can't imagine that it, it's a feasible system to continue to do that. Um, if the seven works, which they do, then I'm all for using it. Um, I suppose, speaking of something we were talking about a little while ago, I suppose that if you were uh, of the chaos magic uh, tradition and you really hated astrology, that would be something that might potentially make it more palatable because it is constantly expanding and changing and there's other variations and that might include enough room for your system. Of course, you might choose not to, and that's cool too. Um, so, one of the symbols, probably the best starting point, is of course the sun. The sun, if you think about what the sun is, it's this life-giving, gigantic, hot-burning thing that uh, really is the... I mean, as far as celestial objects go, nothing else comes even close to its size magnitude, the effect on your life, um, the sheer power and force can just be felt on your face on a summer day. Like that thing is 93 million miles away and you can feel the heat coming off of it to the point that it burns your skin in the middle of June and July. If you live in the United States, of course, if you live in a, a different place, you might have different seasons, but, um, you can understand kind of how it's just overpoweringly, this source of light and power. And if you think about what light is, you know, light is what gives you uh, things like, um, you know, light, light enables life, light enables knowledge. You know, light for many, many cultures has been associated with um, being able to see, you know, because if you turn all the lights off, you can't see. If you turn all the lights on, suddenly you are aware of the room. You can, you know, and... Um, so knowledge, uh, personality, uh, obviously the sun got heavily associated with like the concepts of like one true God and, um, those kind of things, uh, because you had like, you know, Christianity came along, uh, Judaism came along. Of course there were some others, uh, which were monotheistic and, um, there being one true God that is greater than all the others that's, you know. Uh, or maybe one true God and all the others are false. They don't actually exist. And so the object in the sky that is, you know, way bigger and hotter and brighter than everything else easily became a symbol for that. Um, it's also, you know, the sun is also the symbol of like beauty and creativity because of that light, because of the, you know, the effect of that the sun has on the landscape as it's setting, as it's rising, you know, this, uh, you know, if you've ever watched a sunset, it's a gorgeous scene. All these colors emerge out of the atmosphere and bounce off of all the clouds. And it's it's beautiful, you know, uh, the way that, you know, uh, it didn't take very long for people to figure out that uh, if you have a nice sunny day, you're probably going to have a little bit more crop growth than if you have a, a terrible, terrible weather. And so the sun got associated with a lot of different things like light and knowledge and life and God and uh, one of the things that it got associated with is all of the, like the combination of all of the other things. And so uh, the sun is the moon, is Mercury, is Venus, is Mars, is Jupiter, is Saturn, all mixed together. And you'll see that be a really heavy talking point when you are looking at like lesser ritual of the hexagram. 
um, is, a, is a really good example of a, of a, a ritual that um, utilizes the sun as if, if you are it, so for example in Lesser Ritual of the Hexagram as written in Liber uh, Ovel Menace um, which is Crowley's publication the first publication of LBRP and LBRH um, he mentions that if done correctly if done like the really right way uh, that you would banish each element individually and invoke each element individually in order to invoke the sun, but that the sun is kind of a universal one and that you could just banish using hexagram of the sun, invoke using the hexagram of the sun, same concept. Uh, so there's some, there's a little bit of overlap with that idea and how, you know, it, it, the sun is to contain all other things. It is to be the source of all source of light. If that makes sense. Um, the moon is the next symbol that has its own interpretations. Uh, the moon is kind of considered to be... I mean, it's the other large object in the sky. One we associate with daytime and one we associate with night. One we associate with being this constant thing that is always, you know, prevalent, always there in, its, in, the, in, in the day, of course. Uh, whereas, like, the other one kind of, like, I don't know, it, like, has an ebb and a flow to it. It's like, uh, you know, one day it's a full moon and one day it's a new moon and it's, like, constantly changing. It's not always a sphere of burning light. It's, like, sometimes it changes, you know, to a more crescent shape. Sometimes it's more spherical. Sometimes it's gone entirely, you know? And so, uh, the sun and the moon, the symbolism there started to become kind of, um a duality where you know the sun is unity the sun is kether the sun is that you know all pervasive um i shouldn't say the sun is kether because really the sun is more associated with tifereth but you get the idea uh it's it's often the sun is associated as being a component of you know unity uh whereas the moon is much more about flowy things so like the sun's light bounces off the moon. We receive it that way. So the moon is, instead of being active, instead of being um, like male energy pervading out, penetrating out into the universe, the moon is the opposite. It's receptive. It's receptive feminine energy. It's taking that light of the sun and changing it into something valuable and giving it out. Um, so the moon also gets associated with things like emotion, you know, the ebb and flow of emotion. Um, motherhood. I think motherhood and fertility was an obvious one uh, to happen. Months are named after moons. Uh, moons, if that makes sense. Months. And um, nowadays, because of the way we've shifted the calendar in one way or another for bureaucratic reasons and for the uh, addition of uh, Julius Caesar and Augustus Caesar's months, uh, they don't line up perfectly with the moon cycle, but at one point they were pretty damn close. And uh, basically, the reason why I feel like that ties into it, it, it ties into the feminine menstrual cycle. It ties into knowing how many months away the harvest is, which is another thing that gets tied into fertility a lot. Is like the the the, the harvest. Um, it's associated with nighttime, so it gets associated with dreams. 
the moon affects the high tide and low tide and those kind of things. So the moon got associated with ocean-like, and ocean was already associated kind of with the womb, you know, the water of the womb, uh, because one of the first signs of you know childbirth, of course, to ancient cultures, I, I guess not the first sign, one of the important signs that the baby's coming is the breaking of the water. So all of a sudden water gushes out of the woman. That water, of course, got associated with the, the great ocean and the Mother Earth and fertility and those kind of things. So the moon kind of just easily finds its way into a lot of those symbols. So it gets associated with, if the sun is God, then the moon is goddess. And we find this to be the case when we look at you know religions like Wicca, uh, where if you find yourself in a Wiccan coven that is more goddess-based than god-based, of course, there are uh, there are some that are balances of that. There are some that are much more God-based. There are some that are goddess-based. But if you find yourself in the one that I find to be the most common, which is a very goddess-based, um, uh, a goddess-revering coven, um, they will focus a lot on the moon. People will wear moon necklaces that are, you know, uh, the symbols will be drawn on things. There will be the moon in triplicate. There will be goddesses that are of the moon. Um, so the moon gets associated with goddess. And that's... That's kind of why. That's how it gets tied into that. But it also is part of that category. So if you're working with that energy, it would make sense. Um, it also gets associated. So if like the sun is associated with gold, and it's obvious to see why the sun is associated with gold, it's the same color. It's super, super shiny. It's, you know, uh, the the moon gets associated with silver. And for obvious reasons, you know, it's a, it's a more white, silvery light. It's a more white, silvery surface. Um, and then... Of course, it being flowy and changey comes from more than one thing. It comes from the lunar cycle, which is to say that once a month it will change. But it also moves really fast around the sky because it's the closest to us. And so if you have these different categories in the sky, if you say, hey, this constellation is one thing, then next to that sits another constellation, and next to that sits another constellation, and you understand the breakdown of the sky... Um, into each one of the zodiac, right? The moon only takes two and a half days to get to the next zodiac. Most things take much longer to move from one to the next because they're much farther from us. But the moon every two and a half days is in the next part of the sky if you divide it up into 12 sections. Um, and uh, it takes 28 days for the moon cycle to go through its full rotation. Um, so... It gets associated with uh, change and cycles and um, any of the things that are that have ebbs and flows and those kinds of things. Um, the night, of course, is a, a big one. So the night and Mother Mother Earth and those kinds of things get associated with the moon. Uh, on to Mercury, you know, the next one. Mercury, as I, I've already kind of talked a little bit about this one because it's a really good example as we're trying to flush out some of the basics. Um, but uh, Mercury is things like messages and intellect and communication. Uh, because it's intellect and communication, it starts to get tied into medicine, which is just the intellectual understanding and treatment of whatever the ailment is. Um, it gets associated with travel because it's moving around the sky a whole bunch and movement. Uh, so like things like dance and those kind of things. Um, gets associated with gods that are associated with those kinds of things like 
uh, Thoth is a perfect example. Thoth being the uh, ibis-headed Egyptian god. Um, Hermes, another perfect example. Uh, these, you know, the, these gods of knowledge and the sciences and writing and uh, all of those kinds of things are going to become associated with Mercury. And the reason is, again, because of its observable, you know, of movements. Uh, Mercury, there are a couple planets that are not really, really super in a perfect straight line with the ellipses. Um, basically, think about how... All right, so think about how if something is moving in a very, very large circle, but it's in line with you, so you can only see it move left and then turn around and move right and turn around and move left because you're viewing it at, you know, two-dimensionally. It's only moving in a line to you, but if you view it from a different direction, you know, it, of course, it's moving in a circle, right? Um, the line that it goes from one point to the other point with Mercury is tilted really heavy to one side. And so uh, it it doesn't just go left to right in this on the ellipsis. It also goes up and down quite a bit. And that's that's part of the reason why it has so many different interpretations because it makes its way into port parts of the sky that other things do not have as extreme of an angle on their orbit in order to make it into that section of the sky. So if you were to just follow Mercury every day, um, which is a complicated thing to do, and I'll explain why in a moment, uh, then and you were to map that out, then you would uh, you would find um, that it, it makes its way farther north and farther south than other things, if that makes sense. Um, one of the reasons why, and I, I mentioned this briefly, one of the reasons why Mercury and Venus were really hard to pin down is because they are they have such small orbits, much smaller than our orbit, that they stick pretty close to the sun. So, uh, for example, if your orbit's only 88 days around, it's really hard to see you because the sun always blurs out your light. Right, because it's most of the time, any time that it is daytime, and it's not dawn or dusk, uh, Mercury is in the sky because it is so close to the sun at all times. But the sun makes it impossible to see it. Um, so the times that you would see it is if it was at one far end of its uh, cycle. It's it's it, it's as far away from the sun as it's going to get, and it's just about to turn around and go back. And it's early, early, early dawn or early, early, early dusk, depending on which side of that cycle it's at, right? You might just be able to get a glimpse of it because it's far enough away from the sun that it's peeking up over the horizon and the horizon is blocking the light of the sun. So you would get a view, just an instant view of it in those situations. This is the case with Mercury and with Venus. Venus is much farther away from the sun than Mercury. And so it's way easier to see Venus than it is to see Mercury. Um, but this is an important fact. If you ever find an ancient ritual, uh, I can think of a couple off the top of my head that say something along the lines of, you should always do this ritual with Mercury in the sky. Uh, you could cheat. You just do it at noon. <laughs> you can always uh, expect it to be close enough to the sky to, uh, you know, to happen that way. Um, Let's go on to... Okay, but uh, yeah, so it's really... That's also why it got associated with secrets. Because... Uh, so Mercury is kind of... I mean, all of these things are occult in nature. Mercury is 
especially occult in nature, because he is the messenger. He is also the intellect, but he is also secrets, secret knowledges, things that, you know, not everybody knows these things. And that's kind of uh, always been tied into even the concept of occult, the word occult has been tied into the concept of secrets and revealing secrets and keeping secrets. And so uh, it's not hard to see why Thoth got associated with mystery schools, learning mathematics and, you know, secret handshakes and reading and writing and those kinds of things, because uh, it is secret. Um, the reason why is because Mercury's not always there. He could be there one day, and then you go the exact same thing, look at the horizon, and boom, he's gone. Because he's moved so far that now he's in a different position around the sun, and now the sun is blurting him out. Um, Venus. Venus gets associated with things like rest, life, gardens, uh, beauty along the lines of like art and uh, romance and sex and fertility and the wellspring of life and the color green and luxury and money and abundance and... Um, so if, if Mercury is running around and learning how everything works and secret messages and all those kind of things, Venus is the party. Venus is all the gods got together and, you know, ate grapes off the vine and indulged and rested and, you know, just had a great time. And it's beautiful and it's art and it's music and it's those kinds of things. So Venus is, of course, associated with... Uh, Venus being um, heavily associated with like a goddess of beauty, right? Venus, the goddess of beauty. And so she also gets associated with things like sex and fertility and those kinds of things. One of the things that's really interesting about Venus is Venus is the morning star and the evening star because its orbit is far enough away that it's much more regularly uh, to be seen just before and just after sunsets and rises. If that makes sense. Um, it's much more regularly there because Mercury's is too tight. Mercury is, is disappearing one day, whereas Venus, you'll see it for a while. And the ancient Greeks had this thing where they didn't yet understand. They hadn't tracked it long enough and figured out the heliocentric solar system. And so they didn't know that it was multiple. They thought that it was, or they didn't know that it was singular. They didn't know it was one symbol, one thing in the sky. They thought it was two things. And so there's, um, what is it, Isophis? Phosphorus. Yeah, Phosphorus or Isophis. That's it, Isophis. Or Phosphorus, the names for the, I believe that was the morning star. And then the evening star had a couple of names of its own. I don't remember what they are off the top of my head, but um, basically it wasn't until we figure out the heliocentric solar system, we figured out these are not two objects in the sky, they are one object in the sky. And um, it, it kind of takes a little bit from both of those things, right? So uh, it takes a little bit from the morning. You wake up early enough in the morning, you're going you're gonna to have money. You know what I mean? And uh, if you, you know rise to see the, the the sun rising you can the, the earth turns green if you man i had a really powerful moment one time where i was i was deep in meditation and contemplation 
and I had my eyes open and I was sitting and it was, it was nighttime. It was very, very late at night. I'd stayed up all night and, uh, there, the sun started to peak and I was like, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to sit here. I'm going to wait for the sun to peak and I'm just going to observe and feel that feeling and just sit. Right? As the sun started to crest, all of a sudden, you know, my eyes are seeing everything as black. My eyes are seeing everything as black and blue because, you know, it starts a little bit of color starts to creep in. And then all at once, boom, the whole world is green because it was, you know, it was summertime and all everything was in blossom and bloom and the leaves are on the trees and they'd been there all night. But now that the sun had finally peaked that last instant, there's a moment where the earth turns green and it's powerful. If you're meditating in it, you're like sitting in it. And all of a sudden, bam, it changes colors. It's really interesting to watch. It's my favorite moment in the day um, because of that because of that experience, of course. Um, I guess my point is the morning being associated with this flash of green being this profound you know, change in, in one's perception. I'm not surprised that Venus got associated with things like green and all of those, you know, like all that life and plant life because there's that moment in the very very beginning of the morning when venus is you know if you catch venus at that side of the cycle then it's it's that but it also got associated with things like rest and the party and beauty and sex and you know drinking fine wines and those kind of things which is things that you would see in the evening it's things that would make sense if you know the sun was setting and you saw venus in the sky and you thought to yourself there it is there's that uh, evening star let's have another drink to that it's beautiful and you would associate with beauty and art and music and you know with the party with the rest so uh i i think that's a lot of the reason why venus kind of has these two aspects to it but they've kind of joined into one by this period because now we know it's one object and there so it is it is all of this this bounty this restful bounty um, on to the next symbol. So the next planet is Mars. And Mars, I think we all kind of know Mars a little bit. I don't know why Mars became... Mars is much more pop culture than, like, Saturn or Mercury or Jupiter. Everyone knows the associations to Mars. I don't know why. Um, so Mars is associated with, like, warfare. You know, the god Mars. It's volcanoes and uh, force and fire and nations and aggression and because it's associated with those kinds of things uh, it's also associated with things like the metal that so each one of them is that a metal um, I don't think I said what Venus was uh, if I remember correctly Venus is copper yeah so we'll get into them in a second but basically uh each one of the planets is also associated with a specific type of metal. Um, we'll go into much more specifics as to why when we talk about alchemy. But in this case, um, you know, the sun is gold. Gold, that shiny yellow thing, right? Silver, the, the shiny silver thing in the sky. Um, mercury being mercury, it makes a lot of sense. It's a very, you can't quite keep it in one spot type of metal. You know, it's a liquid. And, uh, man, is that weird. Just like Mercury's crazy orbit, uh, Venus, uh, copper. Copper was commonly... Uh, it's a, a very malleable metal. It works really great for jewelry and, uh, you know, those kind of things. And so uh, 
Venus, of course, got associated with copper. Uh, Mars, like we're talking, Mars got associated with iron. And the reason it got associated with iron is because that's what you make swords out of. That's what you make arrows tips out of. That's how you kill. And, um, of course, nowadays we use, you know, steel and lasers and bombs and, you know, all sorts of shit. But think about the time period that these systems kind of came about. Uh, so Mars is associated with iron. And uh, it's associated with the color red. And what's really, really interesting about specifically Mars is that if you see it with the naked eye, you can see that it's red. Um, it's if you if you start to get to the point where you can spot planets, it, all of the planets are a little bit brighter than the others. Uh, you know the stars in the background because they're closer to you. You know, and they're they're just reflecting light as opposed to generating it. But hey, it's enough when it's in your own solar system. And uh, so Mercury gets associated with the color orange, and it kind of is a little orange tinge. And Venus is like a is like a yellow color. It's like a bright man it's almost not yellow either it's like a bright 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 color it's very intensely bright it's like a very very light yellow tinge but just probably one of the when you see it it's one of the brighter objects that's that's around it i if if it's not daylight you know if you don't have the sun to contend with it's probably the brightest object that you see um mars being uh red literally and of course we understand why you know it's not like there's some scientific mystery as to why this one is a different color you know it has a lot of iron in its in its uh dirt um yeah so uh it got associated with the color red the other reason it got associated with the color red is because it's the warfare one right and uh you know blood is red so you know as you like pray to mars and then you slice someone's throat because you're at war with them. Red squirts out. Eventually, you have worshipped Mars and are covered in red. I'm, I'm sure that's probably part of it. Um, it gets associated with things like separating as well, because it, it Mars is kind of a knife. You know, it's kind of like it started to get associated with warfare, and therefore it started to have some of the associations of a knife. Um, and not to say that that's the only reason. Some of its movements are interesting, too, because as you move out farther and farther away from the sun, right, uh, Mars is the first one that's on the other side of us. You know, Mars is the first planet that's like, hey, there's this category, and now there's this other category. There's the inner planets that are closer to the sun than us, and they move around the sky in a specific way because of it. They're always close to the sun, and they... You know, they zigzag back and forth. And then there's, you know, this new category. There's Mars and Jupiter and Saturn falling into that other new category. So the dividing line being a separation between this and that. And so Mars is also kind of that. Uh, Mars is also going to be things that are very, very empowering and um, intense. So it's going to be things like uh, like cardio. Cardiovascular health is Mars. It's like, go run, dude. Get to, you know... Get to, uh, let's say, an hour of running and tell me that there's not some fiery, passionate thing that's keeping you moving. If you manage to make it to that point, it's because you have become Mars energy. You have, you're empowering that. Um, of course, you could probably do cardio with 
mercury energy as well but well, another reason i would use mars is because it's separating one thing from another it's dividing one thing from another and you're trying to divide some of that fat and unhealthiness away from you and cast it on the ground and slay it you know and so mars can be used for those types of things as well um i wouldn't say that mars is evil i would say that mars is aggressive i would say that uh i would probably if it was just me and my life i would probably opt for never using mars in a situation where i felt like it would be inappropriate to yell at someone i'm not saying that it will make you yell at someone but think of the social construct that is where it's appropriate to yell not a lot of places but there are a couple there are some times like for example maybe an emergency you know the building's on fire it's okay to yell at your kids and be like get the hell out of the house you know because the building's on fire it's an emergency so those types of places uh, might be more conductive towards the aggressiveness that is Mars energy than, say, church camp. You know what I mean? Maybe, you know, screaming at somebody is inappropriate. So that would be an example of Mars. Mars is separating us and them because we're at war. It's dividing this part of your body from that part of your body because I sliced there. It's, uh, you know, red and aggression. And because of that, it gets associated with nations and the militaries and armies and uh, political stuff as well. You know, like the way that like, oh, if you're on the left or you're on the right, this is our team. That's your team. You're not on my team. I don't trust you. But it could also be things like... Um, that are less aggressive. It could also be things like uh, like a football game, for example, is a very Mars activity. You know, it's not warfare, but it goes back to that, hey, is it okay to scream at a football game? Think about it. Is it okay to yell at a football game? Yes, it is. People yell orders at each other while they're playing. They, you know, they get hyped up. They get in their little huddled circles and they go, ha, ha. it's very military-like. There's our team and your team and we're divided. We're going to go and clash in order to get the ball. And like that's... An example of something that's not destructive, something that's not like uh, taking lives and those kind of things, but is very Mars energy, if that makes sense. Um, yeah, so it got associated with iron, of course. That makes a lot of sense to me. Um, so Jupiter is the next planet out. Jupiter is uh, if we're if we're following the lead and talking a little bit about the. Um, the uh, metals, right? Jupiter gets associated with tin. Tin is interesting. Tin can be made into all sorts of things. And um, if you take tin and you mix it into copper, you get stronger shit, right? That's how you make bronze. You just mix some tin and copper. There's some other... Don't just mix them together. But there's some process to it, of course. But, uh, yeah, if you if you take this one and mix it into something else, you get more, and it's worth more money, and it's, you know, it's stronger. If you make an axe out of copper, you can definitely cut down a tree. If you mix a little tin in that same axe, now suddenly you can cut down ten trees. It's amazing. Tin in itself is, you know, not really all I... I mean, I shouldn't even say that. It's not useful. You can... It's very... Uh, malleable you can form it in all sorts of stuff you can make tin cans you can make tin plates and tin silverware and sell all those things and 
it's kind of it kind of takes a little bit of knowledge to know that you can mix it into stuff and make it better that's why i bring up the metal immediately it's because that's man that is it that is what jupiter is jupiter is expansion to take you know it's it's creating a bounty it's uh you know it's uh it's taking a little bit and making it into a lot uh it's things like business if you open your own business you have $100 and you work really hard and you provide a service for your customers and you take care of them and you take care of your employees and you know, then your business will get larger and your pile of money will get larger. And now suddenly by doing that thing, you have $500 instead of $100 or whatever the numbers are. doesn't matter. Jupiter is that expansion of business, right? It's all expansion in a lot of other ways too. It's expansion of spirituality, right? When you think about what's the purpose of spirituality is it takes this individual and it opens their eyes to all the different possibilities and it encourages them to be the best them that they can be and they as an individual expand out and become more you know so uh jupiter is associated with that expansion property now jupiter is a really interesting one uh, just like mars is that you can actually kind of see a little bit of a tinge to its color when you see it in the sky and that color got associated with jupiter as well and it's really interesting if you go take a look at a picture of jupiter and it doesn't have a whole lot of this color but for some reason the way that the light bounces off of it enters our atmosphere it gets diffused in a specific way uh jupiter looks a little purple it's got a little bit of a light purple tinge to it and if you just take a picture of jupiter it's not really all that purple so i've always thought that's really fascinating that just something about the way that it plays out um and then Jupiter also gets associated with things uh, like, uh, for example, um, understanding, you know, wisdom. And the reason it gets associated kind of with that wisdom and understanding is like, think back to the tin example. Think back to, as we were talking, you know, mix a little bit of tin in with your copper tools and suddenly you have bronze tools. But you had to be wise enough to follow the old man that knew how to do that in order to discover this new mystery of the universe. That when you take one soft thing, copper, and another soft thing, tin, suddenly you get a harder thing. That's, I mean, it's counterintuitive. You had to kind of be shown that that's a, that that's a thing. And so Jupiter is associated with that understanding that that's there. Um, it's also associated with luck. Anything that, like, gives a bounty. So, like, you're walking down the street and you find $5. Thank Jupiter I found $5. Now... When we say things like thank Jupiter, it's really kind of funny because Jupiter is the Roman name for Zeus. And so Jupiter is also kind of considered to be this, you know, this high-end ruler of all of the different stuff. And so uh, Jupiter can get mixed into sun activities, can get mixed into Mercury activities, can get mixed into all these other ones because it's expanding what's already there. So you might, um, I wouldn't say do this all the time, of course but you might find that you're doing some Mars endeavor, but you also want to expand up a little bit so you can do Mars and Jupiter at the same time or you know, Venus and Jupiter, or whatever the thing is. Uh, it works really good in combination with something else. This is what I'm getting at. Um, yeah, so that's that's a really, wow, that's a really good description of how Jupiter works uh, and what types of things. Um, I'll share a personal experience with Jupiter. Um, I... I like to, I find it very potent to 
do something in a mundane way. Work really hard at it. And then enhance that with some form of magic. So, like, for example, I went to college. I got uh, a job interview at a place that was insanely more money than my last job. It was, like, three times as much money. And I looked at the new job that I wanted, and I looked at my resume, and I was like, okay, I can technically get in the door, but I don't know if they're going to want me. I'm going to do my best. And so I did the mundane measures, which is, you know, make sure that I'm ready for an interview, prepare for it, prepare my career in a way that on paper I look good, and, you know, I've, I have this this stuff in my life. And then I did the magic thing, which was I invoked Jupiter just before my interview. Um, luckily for me, <laughs> it's worked out really well. Luckily for me, uh, I took the interview remotely because this was right in the peak of uh, COVID, and so... It was in 2020 when everybody was kind of working from home and, you know, uh, people weren't really doing interviews in person. And so they did the interview online. And so just before the interview, I was in my temple space invoking Jupiter. And then I left the temple space, walked into my office and hit enter on my computer keyboard and immediately left that space, that energy of Jupiter and went directly into my meeting. And uh, I got the job. Now, am I saying I wouldn't have got the job without it no but i probably wouldn't have been as confident without it i probably wouldn't have had that energy backing me up in the way that it did without it and i probably wouldn't have been bold enough to negotiate for a higher salary the way that i did and get more out of my life to expand that opportunity and my life was expanded from that you know uh there's now uh more available in my life so that i can you know, uh, buy some of the things that I want to buy and do some of the things that I want to do in a way that I wasn't able to do before that. Um, so that's a really good example of how you might use like Jupiter energy is your career. You know, your career is Jupiter. The more Jupiter energy you put into it, the more wisdom and, you know, expansion you put into your, to your resume, the more you're going to get out of it. So that's an example. Then we get to the bad guy. <laughs> Here's the last symbol. I personally don't like to think of it as the bad guy. I think that it is a strongly misunderstood set of symbols. But Saturn is generally considered to be some negative shit. Uh, it is... It, okay, so all of those other ones are building up. They're exciting. They're all these things. Saturn is boring and practical. And that's kind of difficult. It's opposition. It's good to have opposition in the universe. You know, you, you don't want everything to just go perfectly all of the time because then you'll never be challenged in order to do things a better way and you'll never uh, grow from the strength of opposition. You know? And you'll never challenge your own ideas and break them down. Um... But Saturn is practical and restrictive, and it stops you. It's the opposite of Jupiter. So Jupiter is like, it's expansion. Everything's working. The business is functioning great. Saturn is like, also, it's tax season, bud. And, uh, you know, you're going to get audited. <laughs> um, it's, uh, you know, oh, I have $100? Yeah, but you, your bills are $95. So you got, you got bills, bud. Saturn is that. It's the opposition 
It's the thing that comes after and kind of halts you. And it's like, no, 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 stop. Here's some bad in your life. And, you know, I think it's important to understand Saturn in order to understand opposition in your life. Because it's one thing to say, Saturn fucks up all your plans. It's another thing entirely to say, Saturn acts as this restrictive, practical opposition that encourages me to, number one, act with more uh, practicality. Number two, to get the most out of something. To three, always have a plan for what happens when it goes wrong. You know, to to adapt, to have my plan, my, my plan B. You know, don't just always expect that everything will go right to have like, you know, what happens if it doesn't. So that's, that's why Saturn is positive in my mind. But um, Saturn is the, the opposition. And so Saturn also gets tied into spiritual opposition. It gets tied into the concept of like Satan. You know, Saturn is, is uh, a dark force, you know, an a, a opposition force. Um, it can also get uh, tied into like adulthood, you know, like in your childhood, you're like, there's a really interesting reason why, too. This is this is probably one of my favorite uh, things as to how um, when you have like a uh, like a planetary movement that leads to some of the reason why it's interpreted as a specific thing. Saturn's my favorite example. Um, for Saturn, one of the things that happens with Saturn is it spends a great majority of the year, because it's so far out from us in the way that it works, spends a great majority of the year moving one direction, and a great majority of the year moving in the other direction. Uh, where like Mercury, it's like every 44 days it changes directions. This thing is like just constant, right? Uh, which is one of the reasons it's very practical. You know, it's, it's getting where it's going because it, it has plotted its course. It's going in that direction for a very long time, and then it moves turns around the other direction right but because of that and because it's so far away from us it takes years for saturn to uh come back to the same spot in the sky uh so if you're born on you know i don't know wednesday the 24th of whatever and the when you're born saturn is 13 degrees taurus whatever whatever the thing is right whatever zodiac the sun is in and what or the saturn is in and whatever degree it's at um it takes 29 and a half years for it to go all the way full circle around the zodiac and return back to that point for you what happens in about 29 and a half years think about it think about your life think about an individual could you say that when you're about 30 you're in the camp of the mature adults, the old people, the, you know, it's not all a part of the party anymore. But when you're like 25, you're like, you know, having a good time. It's your 20s, man. Do whatever. It's great. Drink all the time. There's no consequences. It's fine. There's something genuinely interesting about how at about 29 and a half years. Uh, and it, this is this is approximate because it's going to depend on... Um, yeah, it, it 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 also lasts like three years. It stays in that zodiac for like three years. 
but it's also going to depend on which direction it was moving when you were first born and those kind of things. So it's going to be really rough. It's around your 30s, you're going to have a bad year or two where everything is difficult and all of your plans are thwarted and you start being much more practical. And you're like, you know what? Uh, in my 20s, everything was going great. It was free riding. I could drink every night of the week. I could have $0 in my bank account and make it to the next paycheck. And everything was fine. And then you hit your 30s and you're like, dude, I need an emergency fund. Uh, my body is starting to be an antagonist in my life. I need to like, you know, I need to potentially like go see a doctor and make sure that I'm taking care of my health. I need to eat right. I need to, you know, make sure that, you know, all of my bills are properly paid on time. And I have this system built in my life in order to get it's responsibility starts to enter. And I'm not saying that it's always at exactly 29 and a half by any means. That's a crazy thing to suggest. But what I'm saying is there's a rough life change that happens around that rough timeline that includes a lot of problems that could last two and a half, three years. And um, the way that you learn to cope with them is to become practical, to plan ahead, and to be less dust in the wind, if that makes sense. And that's why it's so incredibly interesting to me that Saturn takes that period of time to come back. But it's also what, you know, people people look at these movements of the sky and they associated some of these things after watching those movements. So they figured out that it takes 30 years and they looked at a person's life and they went. Actually, that's my interpretation. I don't know. I don't want to put my interpretation into others. Um, you, could, you could interpret it the other way around too. You could definitely interpret it that, uh, that there's a force that's being sent out of that cycle and it's influencing the individual my perception is on the other side of it i i think that people looked at the sky and associated these symbols with of the pattern that they found um but it regardless it is it is interesting to see how true that actually is that there's you know that cycle exists um i suppose it would be kind of interesting to kind of look at how the orbit lengths uh, are different between things. So let's see. So Jupiter takes 12 years. And so 12, 24, 36, and 48 years old. I'm sure you can kind of see how there's like expansive property of like, what is your life at 12 years old? What is your life at 24 years old? You know? What is your life at 36? Each one of these phases that builds on the last, you know, uh, could be interpreted as about every 12 years there's also something about like expansion being like a fractalized like a pattern there's 12 zodiacs and there's 12 years and you know how uh reoccurring numbers build on the symbol of the last thing so i think there's probably something to be said there um mercury of course is uh actually let's let's look what mercury return actually takes Mercury's once a year because it moves with the sun. Venus is going to be once a year because it moves with the sun. Although it could potentially happen twice in a year because if the degrees were to line up just right with its movements, you could have it stop at that point in the sun, swing back around, and hit the same point in the sky if it transitioned just right. I'm, I'm not sure how that works. Um, let's see. Obviously, we talked about the cycles of the moon how long that takes about once a month to go all the way around about two and a half 
well, no, two and a half days to heat each one of the zodiacs one month in order to go through its entire light cycle, where it's full moon versus new moon, and then back. Um, let's see. Venus is going to fall into that. What about the Mars return? And then Mars uh, is every two years, which it, Mars being a dividing force. It's funny that it divides things into two. It takes about two solar cycles for it to... So there's definitely something to be said about uh, those being some of the reasons why it has those forces, those energies, those ideas associated with them. Um, so that kind of wraps up our explanations of the specific planets themselves. Um, if you were to be using specifically invoking and banishing rituals like the lesser banishing ritual of the pentagram uh, in order to be working with these energies... In this case, as I have already said, you would use the lesser banishing ritual of the hexagram. And the reason, of course, is that, you know, the pentagram is four points and then a fifth point for spirit. The hexagram is six points and then a seventh point for sun. So the sun being that force that has all of the other planets combined. And then each one of the points on the star is associated with a specific um, so if we were looking at the pentagram, the top is the spirit, uh, the top left is air, the top right is water, the bottom left is earth, and the bottom right is fire. With the hexagram, it follows the associations of the Kabbalistic tree of life. So if you put the sun in the middle so that it contains all the other things, and then you put that middle of that star, a six-pointed star, or like a Star of David, or uh, also a universal hexagram. Both of those systems get used. Um, I, I opt for the universal universal hexagram because it's in shape much more similar to the pentagram. But you can do whatever you want. Um, to be fair, the universal hexagram also has associations of being associated with, like, Thelema. If you're not a Thelemite, you might not have as much, like, I don't know, emotional investment in that symbol so maybe it's not as meaningful to you that's okay you can use the just a standard star of david as well the two interlocking triangles one pointing up and one pointing down that works just fine too uh whatever works best for you um so if you were to take that six-pointed star and you were to put the center of it on tifereth uh, in the kabbalistic tree of life then each one of the points would fall on a sphere, and each one of those spheres would be associated with a specific type of energy. The only one that wouldn't fall on a sphere is uh, the one that would fall on Doth. And Doth is, um, of course, Saturn. You know, It's the dividing line between the divine of the Trinity and the, the, lower, uh, you know, the lower seven uh, Sephiroths. And so you'd put... Saturn being that practical, uh, you know, energy there. Um, so that would make it Saturn at the very top, uh, the sun in the very middle, the top left would be, what is that, Jupiter, the top right, no, I'm sorry, the top right is Jupiter, the top left is Mars, the bottom left point is... Mercury, the bottom right point is Venus, and the very, very bottom point is going to be the moon. So you'd have each one of the points represent one of the elements 
or I'm sorry, not the elements, the planets, and then the center be the sun, which is the unity of all of the planets. Um, you can utilize that system however you see fit. There are some instructions, of course, in Libro Valmanus that talks. I'm sorry, it's is it Manus? Yeah, Manus at Sagittaria. Yep. Um, Libro, commonly termed Libro, um, which talks about the lesser banishing ritual of the hexagram, the lesser banishing ritual of the uh, pentagram. Those two different systems, one for element and one for planetary energies. Um, so you use a hexagram for them. It's, there's not a whole lot more to really dive into in this particular episode. I feel like we're definitely going to have to unpackage a lot of that as we talk more about actual astrology. I'd like to do eventually an astrology episode, and that might turn into a natal chart episode and then do a separate one for predictive astrology, whereas we might just join them together and make one particular episode. Um, but definitely, if these are things that you want to learn more about, uh, keep an eye out for that type of information coming out and we'll do a deeper dive then so good luck and uh, wish you the best thanks for listening to the whitewood podcast this show is made possible by our patreon members you can find us on twitter at whitewood show and on facebook at whitewood podcast for links to all our social media and information about our patreon visit us at whitewoodpodcast.com